Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Hello, welcome to another episode of In the Landscape. Thank you for joining us. And we're back in studio for another episode. We don't have any super creative ways to introduce the show. <laughs> doesn't vary much, but it's we're, always funny trying churning to out get started. <laughs> like an oak tree turns out acorns. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so we're loving the process. We're loving the feedback from our listeners. We're loving the research and the chance to talk with each other about the landscape. I think mm-hmm. we're learning a lot about and from each other as a couple in business partnership as well as marriage. So mm. it's a lot. And I, of course, am one of your hosts. I'm Kate Sadler, and with me in studio is my co-host, Charles. Good to be here, as always. (laughs) Co-host, business partner, husband, all the things. (laughs) So having this nice, we always set up the studio so that we're face-to-face, and we really do kind of have a conversation and respond to each other. If you'd like to join in that conversation, feel free to stay tuned toward the end of the episode. We give our contact information. Always would love to hear from you. We've had our first guest in studio. So that was full disclosure, my mother, Deborah Caldwell, but she happens to be a biologist and a master gardener and Mm -hmm. garden enthusiast. So I think she was a good addition to the episode. Hopefully we'll have her back for some of the more sciencey topics that we Mm -hmm. cover. Of course, I have introduced you in previous episodes as our resident landscape design expert, which of course you are. Um, You founded and run King Garden, which is our design firm. And I mentioned that because today's episode is actually about an element of design. And those have been popular episodes where, you know, I mean, (laughs) you're also a horticulture expert and pruning expert. So we've covered a range of topics, but people are tuning in and asking questions about design concepts and how you plan a design. Right. So today's episode is actually about the architecture of the landscape. We don't mean human formed buildings, which there are there's so that's a whole other episode on how you design architectural elements in the landscape. But what we're referring to is the organic architecture inherent in the plants that we're planting, how to make the most of that, how to plan it into the landscape, how to think of those shapes. Because we've mentioned this before as well, that the organisms that we're partnering with in our landscapes that we're selecting and choosing to plant have their own agenda. Ultimately, they have their own sort of life cycle and reproductive needs and growth patterns. So the more selective we are up front about, as we've said, I mean, from the very first episode, right plant in the right place, Mm -hmm. the more selective we are, the better the results will be because then we're working in harmony with the ingredients that we've chosen for our landscape. I like to use human resources as an analogy. And I think, I mean, just in our, when we've hired, when we've hired people, I guess I've been unrealistic in the demands. I want this person to be able to do three. (laughs) (laughs) None of our our current employees are going to relate to that. If anyone's listening. (laughs) (laughs) So being like a Swiss army knife, people know what that is. Where you open it, it has, you know, like a dozen tools. Most people, that's not true. There's, if someone could do some one thing well, like one you know major task, and so with plants, the plant should work hard in the landscape. It should really be the right plant for the right place, not just be like a pretty face necessarily. So it's but it's like knowing the limitations of a plant or of plants, 
And in some cases, I think when plants don't work, they're probably being asked to do too much. So it's there's sort of knowing the limitations of the strengths, the weaknesses of the plants, you know, like a company that has lots of turnover, it's not being realistic. And they're and so having gardens have turnover too, where plants are constantly being replaced. So it's sort of being honest, what is really important in if it's screening, privacy, flower, shade, and making sure that that key program or key, key element, that the plant can do that key element. Ever since you mentioned Swiss Army Knife, I've been going back to wondering, it's such a cool little tool, but I'm wondering who has ever used all the tools available even. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it has them and I could see if I were in maybe in the field in an army context, maybe I would have use for all those tools. Have but a it bottle is, of wine at lunch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it is almost too much. I mean, for the average person, even if it is offering all those things in one, maybe it's, you know, it's kind of nice to simplify and to think of these organisms, these plants as individuals, and then programming them into your garden in that way. Right. So from a design perspective, of course, there's We've talked before in some of our episodes, color is a key, and often it's the first key that people think of. Mm-hmm. But you have some resources that actually get down to the shape. And shape may be an element that we think of in terms of manipulating the plant. Mm-hmm. So forcing it into a shape, maybe forcing is a strong word. And of course, topiary is a wonderful, kind of whimsical, vibrant element of architecture in the landscape. But there are organic shapes that can actually achieve geometric approximations, I right, guess. Correct. So what, what are we looking for then? And how do we ascertain whether a, a specific plant is going to develop that shape for us? So there's like what they call the straight species. So it's like a paper bark maple. It's, it exists in nature. It, as I understand it, it grow on the edge of the forest in China in a you know mountain-like condition possibly. <laughs> so that's like a straight species or a sugar maple. Then there are hybrids or cultivars where it's it's an offshoot from that parent and it could have different traits like a boxwood that franklin's gem is one that's very little it's like the size of like a salad bowl you know it stays quite small so there's the straight species of boxwood people call it american boxwood boxa sempervirens and so that's relatively inexpensive it grows pretty quickly easy to reproduce it left unpruned, though, it could get to be 8, 10, 12 feet tall, where if the goal of the program is a front foundation planting, where you want it to be, let's say, 36 inches tall, you can purchase that plant at 36 inches tall. It's relatively inexpensive. And then from that day on, you're more or less going to be fighting to keep it that size. We're selecting the plant, a hybrid that on its own, it'll exist at about three feet tall. It might take some time to get there. There's very little pruning. And so these interventions like pruning, irrigation, pesticides, in some cases, it's not really necessary. There's another route. And so the plant can more or less, with a minimum amount of interventions or almost none, it it can succeed. Essentially, what you're advocating is right plant in the right place, but right silhouette, right shape in the right place. Right. I mean, there's that term permaculture that's popular. And that's very valid. So it's like the least amount of interventions, really, whether it's if a plant is really the right plant. I mean, in a way, it's like quite spiritual. It's the plant really shouldn't need fertilizer or extra water or pruning. 
if it's really the right plant. So, I mean, there's gardens where, where we do work and where we do all those things. But the ideal, I think, that we strive for when we create the garden ourselves, many gardens we work on, we're not create, we're assisting with a mature garden. But yeah, if it's really the right plant, like the, the right silhouette, so if it's a palm tree, you can break the rules. Like there was a, a project in Houston that I was working on, and then adjacent to it was another project. And the palm trees were planted very close to the building, but it worked. It was the south side of the, of the it was facing south, and they looked fantastic. They were probably maybe seven or eight feet from the building, and they're growing toward the sun, so it wasn't causing a problem with the building. So in a way, it was like breaking all the rules, but it, it was a tall building, so it, but, it, but it worked. So in terms of the architecture of the plant, would you suggest that people have a large rowing radius to allow the plant to kind of reach its full authentic shape? Hmm. Is that something to consider? Correct. Yeah, to, be, to be pretty rigorously honest with that, to say, mm. to really understand if you're breaking the rules to really understand that you are. That right. large scale shade trees like oaks and beeches and some maples, they're like a civic scale where they're going to get 60 feet wide or like the live oaks here in Texas. So being really honest is I was at a nursery and like one of the salesperson was saying the live oaks, it's really for properties that are like a few acres or larger. So like a quarter acre property, a tree that's going to be 60 feet wide, that's like as wide as the whole property. And you have all kinds of other programs like sidewalks, cars, driveways, houses, gutters, which are going to catch all that leaf litter. Well, and as we can attest, you sometimes have, well, and if you go back and listen to episode number one, if you can stand the audio quality or lack thereof, <laughs> um, and our our stuttering start to being podcasters. Our humble beginnings. Yeah, oh, like my humble beginnings. <laughs> you'll hear us. It's the very first thing we comment on is this idea that you've got these gorgeous trees planted too closely together, and they're going to start competing over time, and it's not going to work. And Speaking of live oaks, we saw a spectacular example last night when we were, maybe you can describe where we were. It was a full moon too. Oh, it was, it was like part of the whole, yeah. I mean, for the whole North America, it would have been this, Yeah, it called like the wolf moon or it's, it's like a snow moon. There's some, oh my. there's some type of, a, <laughs> somebody who's mentioning it. I noticed it. I'm I not sure. It had a special it's, name, but where were we? So we we're at the Mental Collection, if I'm saying that correct. M-E-N-I-L. Right. Yeah. Correct. So that's a. A foundation that houses, I mean, as I understand, it's like contemporary art, modernism, people from the 20th century. And I mean, now it's people from the 21st century too. And it's near downtown Houston. And it's a whole campus of, we just actually looked it up. Renzo Piano was the architect of the main building, maybe the first building. Their collection is many thousands of pieces of art. I mean, maybe even, I think it's maybe 15,000. So it's a large collection or institution. <laughs> and then the way it's set up was quite fascinating. That really is a campus. So there's, it's gradually spawning new buildings. There's a building that we went to that's brand, pretty much brand new. It's called the, the Drawing Collection. And I think they were even between exhibits. The main building, would you say maybe that's like, it's, it's multiple stories tall? Yeah, but not, I mean, but not, not really vertical. There's still a horizontal Right. Feel it's, to it. Yeah, like a massive horizontal. Yeah. And then there's even residential homes woven into that mm -hmm. neighborhood. And so there's museum and then residential houses across the street. And then we walk down a little bit and 
there are very mature live oaks that are mm-hmm. that are knitted into that fabric. And then these And certainly a large enough scale that they could reach that full sort of arching, you know, the bowed, the big mm-hmm. long limbs that almost come down to the ground. It had that that space to kind of create that shape that's so magical. Right. Yeah, it's very horizontal. I mean it's it like hugs the ground. It's almost like if you took a a large lettuce leaf and laid it on your counter and it would you know, it's mostly horizontal. That's almost what a live oak, in some cases, I mean, they, they're ones that get taller, like depending on the light. But if it's full sun, it will just spread out like a big bean bag, you mm. know. <laughs> and then underneath it is it, the sinuous branches that hang mm-hmm. down. And it was in the evening when we were there. It was, I guess it was around dinner time, like six to seven or so. And so the, the lighting was really neat. That Yeah, they had great lighting like, all like over under the Under the canopy. Of the of the live oaks, it was the trees were black, like mm. India ink black, but there was still ambient light around it. So the the silhouetting of the tree was neat, and the landscape lighting and some of the newer parts work was coming on. And who was responsible for the landscape design of that campus? Uh, as well, far as we know, well, like I don't know overall, but the that new section is uh, Michael Van Valkenburg that's been in the journals. That was I thought was really special. There was so much restraint, so understated. The building, that man might have been a curator that we spoke to mm-hmm. in that in the drawing collection. It was interesting, if I know coincidence, the architects for that drawing collection were residential architects. They were not institutional architects. I think they're from California, he said. It was a couple. So it had the building, it felt, res- it, it was a museum. It felt museum institution-like, but it, with the refinement, like a modern architecture, like a modern home. And it fit right in that campus. It wasn't wasn't daunting at all. So what is the relationship between the landscape and the building? And how do we respect that as we're designing? So we're not talking specifically about architecture on this episode, but how do you evaluate your architecture and then kind of weave your landscape in to suit that? Hmm. Very good question. Because it's at a professor at Syracuse who was an architect and he taught landscape architecture also. One of his favorite questions for our, our designs, he would always say, what's the most noble? Like when you have, let's say you have two paths that are meeting or two roads, one is going to be more noble. So there's one is the highway and one is like a, a side street. And so in some cases, the building, there's been projects where it was a colonial revival building. It was very ornate. And there was one in Westchester, I remember. It was a recent renovation. There was really almost no landscaping. So I was coming in. And so the building was the star. All this, the windowsills were very low. So you, so you didn't want to have a traditional foundation planting. So it's sort of assessing what's the program, what's already there. So if the building's there or if working in conjunction with the architect is even better. And so for this colonial revival, having a ground cover that went the length of the front of the home, that was a program that a design concept that I developed, keep, keeping it very simple. <laughs> and then there were mounding evergreen shrubs. There were maybe just a half dozen at, at, at intervals, like where it changed from, there was that, the main house, then there was a lattice area that was a, a covered porch. So at, like at that transition, there was a, a mounded evergreen shrub to kind of soften, which were, the shrubs were more or less like punctuation. And then there were ornamental trees there was a stewardia at one end and a service berry at the other. And those were these architectural elements that 
that were had this reciprocal, like this vibration with the building. It was reinforcing the building visually, but it wasn't competing with it. And that's now you could have a landscape that is very bold, like the at the Menno collection. Those plantings are pretty bold. There's trees, there's ground covers, there's boulders and rocks, and the building was is very austere. So that, I guess, it's like a relationship, it has to work. You can't have two, two people that are in charge. <laughs> well, and it's funny too because you're doing the research and preparing to give this talk in uh, Manhattan next. Well, this coming week in a few days, actually. So, um, as of this recording, although I think this episode will air after you've given the talk, and your the talk is about Longview House and Gardens, which is a, a special property in New Orleans, Louisiana, mm-hmm. and you can share more on this. But in speaking about the relationship between house and landscape, it was a very specially designed landscape, so much so. That, it, that you've told me this anecdote that the landscape architect convinced the homeowners to d- tear down the home that they had, had <laughs> right. built there and build a brand new home so that it would be better in harmony with this magnificent landscape. So the home that exists there now, which is very special and wonderful to visit, was actually the product of the relationship with the landscape architect that then you know, fostered a collaboration with an architect. How often I mean, do most architects that you're aware have a favorite landscape architect? Is it sort of a mutual relationship or, or is that something that is sort of like throughout history, there have been special collaborations, but it's not, it's not necessarily the norm that you, that an, a building architect would be, you know, maybe the landscape is sort of an afterthought. I don't know. What's your well, thought? It varies. I mean, there are like some some uh, well-known collaborations. His last name is Lutens, if I'm saying that right. I think it's Edwin or Edmund Lutens, and then Gertrude Jenkel. So Lutens was the architect in England, and Jenkel was the landscape designer. So that's like a that's a legendary collaboration. Many many properties, and then Ellen Shipman and Charles Platt. So he, Charles Platt was an architect. Ellen Shipman was a landscape architect. They did quite a bit of collaborating. Shipman collaborated with Warren Manning. There were, yes, there are relationships that work. And it's the other factor would be the client. Oh, now, sure. I mean, now okay. some clients, it could be landscape heavy where the client or I mean, I've had that where the client contacts the landscape designer first, and then they'll, they'll ask me, do you have a suggestion for an architect? We're going to renovate or we're going to be building a new home. And I'll, and the architects that I'm familiar with, I can share that information. Then there's cases where the architect is working with with the owners, and then the architect um, have I've had this too. With they have a landscape designer that they're comfortable working with, and then they will suggest them. And then the the other category would be where there's a des- there's a designer, and then you're sort of this arranged marriage <laughs> you're put together, oh, and maybe the the designers it definitely can be workable, but it's it's not the designers picking each other. Right, and that can go over many years. There's projects where I'm the second landscape designer in the relationship, where the client went eighty eighty percent of the way, and then they parted ways. It wasn't it wasn't working. <laughs> I wanted to ask a little more about the architecture of plants themselves, and specifically, you know, 
do we think of, okay, I sort of think of architecture with a big A as being, you know, the structure itself. And then design is like a separate category where you have like interior designers who come and sort of outfit the home Mm -hmm. (laughs) aesthetically. I don't know if those are separate for sure in every case, but then with the plants, it's almost like there are these structural elements that you're putting in, but the design is always a part of it because there is the color to consider. And I mean, I'm thinking even of the different shapes of leaves as we visit gardens like Peckerwood with the different agaves and palms and oaks and yuccas. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. You know, they're not it's not like these tall statuesque shapes. It's maybe squat statuesque shapes because the mm-hmm. leaves are, you know, these spiny profusions. So how, how do you kind of put all of that together? There are some historians that will say landscape architecture, landscape design, it's one of the most complex arts because it's, you're dealing with time, it's like the fourth dimension. So great designers can envision, you go to some great civic spaces where, the trees were planted in the mid 1800s and and it looks amazing now it looks 150 or more years later it looks fantastic you were showing me a picture of somewhere like that i think it's a park in new york city that has trees that are oh right there's a that's the chicago art institute oh, sorry chicago and, <laughs> not new york and that, uh, <laughs> and that was uh, dan kiley who is a modernist, he was really inspired by the classical artists. So he looks like he's so modern, but he's using those same principles of classicism, the mm-hmm. Greeks and Romans. And so he picked, it's an outdoor courtyard at this museum, and he picked this gnarly, really tough Washington Hawthorne. So it's something, if you came across it, you need a chainsaw to get past it. It's so, it's these, you know, five inch thorn, giant thorns. The architecture, though, of it is amazing. It grows up and then the, the branches, it spreads out. So it's, it's quite wide, like a muffin top. In this courtyard, there's these raised planters, constructed planters. So these trees are above you and there are these clouds, these cloud like branches, which are completely separate from people. And the amazing thing, the trees have not been shaped, more or less. They, they're just doing their own thing, and they look amazing. And it feels, it feels wild. It is wild, but it's urban. And it's this amazing contrast where, I think it's Joe Carr, who worked for Kylie, and the Cultural Landscape Foundation has this uh, dialogues of that relationship, you know, saying that Kylie was such a master of really, really, really picking the most exquisite plant. Or the plant just did its own thing. It wasn't doing anything unusual. It was just being itself, but it was the perfect in that setting. So it sounds like designing with the respect of the organic form already in mind. Mm -hmm. And so not many cultures do it, but European gardens where with the plants, in some cases are heavy, are very manipulated. And some of the gardens we work on, we're manipulating through pruning and other techniques. But even within that, there's, the approach I try to take is the minimum amount of pruning, more or less having the right plant. And then like the best compliment is when someone says, it doesn't even look like you pruned it, that it just, it just looks orderly, but there's like a softness and a, an effusiveness about it. 
I think a lot of one of my favorite spaces, it's where we met. We went on our first date. <laughs> Actually, we met on, what, 65th Street and then <laughs> went from there to one of my favorite places, Central Park. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about what is the most noble a lot in terms of the programming of that park. So, for instance, for, for folks who have been there, they can imagine like the cars, the taxis are not the most noble thing in that park. They're They're like buried. Yeah. The roads are sunken. Um, And it really is the people and the enjoyment of the park that is foremost. We're talking sort of about the relationship of plants to buildings. What is it like to have a space that's so big that you, I mean, do you, do you suppose Olmsted could not have been designing with the architecture of the city totally in mind because the architecture has changed since his time. Correct. Right. I mean, Um, there weren't, if I remember my history, right. The buildings didn't start getting very tall until they started using steel. Yeah. And then when they were like a masonry building is going to be limited to maybe 10 stories. Right. The tenements were in in the lower East side. Those were maybe six stories that was occurring. Yep. So the mega that are a, like the buildings now that are a thousand feet that are people have different opinions of that, but it's that are those are like it's quite it's quite a new phenomenon, really. Mm. But but this the park it holds its own amongst those tall you know, structures. A, a precedent that's I don't know where it stands, if there's if there's more news than I know, but uh, the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, it's a recent precedent. As I understand it, there's a proposal to to build a very tall building adjacent to the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. And it would cast shade on the garden such that like it would cast a lot of shade a lot of the time. I don't know if it's all day. And so it would really alter to the plants that are there that are like a hundred years old or more would probably be in jeopardy. And so there's been an outcry. I'm not sure where that stands, but that's the ongoing. I mean, people need places to live. So it, it really is these architecture and plants and people it's an ongoing dialogue of it's reassessing what is the program what is the goals what's reasonable i mean to have things set in stone we're never going to change i don't that doesn't tend to be a good approach i mean maybe for certain special very special you know buildings or landscapes but uh, i mean central park has been altered a lot and that there's there's baseball fields and bike lanes and there's taxis you know so it still has that to my mind, like the design intent is maintained and there's architects, landscape architects that are, you know, really laboring over how do we maintain that initial design intent and make it, and there's lots of playgrounds at Central Park. Those were, those weren't there. Well, there's something very humble about designing, as you said, in the fourth dimension, especially when it means you won't be there to see it. At mm-hmm. its peak, but you're envisioning it at its peak. And you know that at some point down the road, people will see it and appreciate it. And there's some special trees in Central Park and I'm sure in other parks and gardens around the world that have that element to them. So in our case, we think of a specific tupelo that's up by up by the duck pond, I think on the mm-hmm. upper west side, upper upper part of the park that just gets the spectacular scarlet color in the fall right and it's a big tree and you your impression is that it's it may well be an original right when you see trees though a tupelo tree a large one would be like 24 inches in the landscape that would be a very old and so this tree i would say is like 36 inch you know at, at mm-hmm. like a chest height 
So there are trees when I see them. Sometimes it's like estates, college campuses, parks, where based on my tree, you know, expertise, it's likely that that's like an original, that that is like an 1850s or 60s, or when you're in some cemeteries where it's, yeah, it's like early 1800s, it's pretty likely. And so that's exciting to see that. Imagining somebody was envisioning the architecture like of a European beach, what that's going to look like, or a white oak, or... Or what's the one, the Capability Brown Cypress? Oh, right. Which you see like... That I see on every time there's like a Downton Abbey or a... Correct. (laughs) Some sort of British It's like a bluish cast. Yeah. And those... You can spot it as soon as you see it. It's the giant tree with the big art, sort of like the... Sort of like the live oak, the kind of like curving limbs. It's very, there's a deodar cedar. And I, it can, there's a blue atlas cedar. I think it might be a deodar. It's one of those. Oh, cedar. Yeah. And so that's, <laughs> that's older. I mean, that's older, way older than like the Olmstead period. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like hundreds, hundreds. And, you know, <laughs> it stands up to the scale that of these mm. castles, abbeys, mm. these enormous buildings that are just these, you know, such a, like a, sense of scale and the landscape in these trees are suited to that, like the trees in Central Park. Well, and just as if you had an architect build a building or a new house, you would be aware that at some point it was going to need maintenance and upkeep and a plan to replace the roof and check the foundation. If you're mapping out your your landscape architecture, it's a good idea to be and we've talked about this in other contexts, the garden calendar, et cetera, but we're talking about this fourth dimension and just that the plan for the turnover of plants and the care of the plants as they get older and and just looking ahead. You know, there were some landscape architects like Beatrix Frand who baked that into their design and mm-hmm. their the awareness that time was going to progress, not just in terms of you know, delivering beautiful trees 150 years later, but also in terms of, you know, just the cycle that the plants would go through. You know, Ellen Shipman, in my research of her at Longview, so there there was a plan. And so that was a document that the owners retained. And so when something died, they would know what variety. And so she used, in some of her work, very unusual, like hard to find varieties, but it was extra special. It was like a hard to find cooking ingredient. And so she would list substitutions. She would say, you know, this certain type of daylily, this Asiatic daylily that's very hard to find what was specified, but here are like three or here's a substitute that would be reasonable to find. And so that really, that's quite thoughtful. It's realistic. Things are going to are gonna grow and they're going to die. And then how, what's the succession plan? And so some of your research was based on the book and that's the book that you'll be speaking about in this coming week. The Longview House and Gardens by Carol McMichael Reese, Charles Davey, and Taisa Way. Right, correct. I believe the publisher is Rizzoli Books, which mm-hmm. is why you're speaking at Rizzoli Books mm-hmm. in Manhattan. And you actually have a connection to one of those authors. Oh, right. Taisa Way was a professor of mine while I was at Syracuse. Oh, very good. And she's actually, she is at Dumbarton Oaks now. She's more or less, which is a Beatrice Frand property and it's it's owned by Harvard and it's a research institution, a landscape research institution. Very cool world. So uh, we just wanted to include that so that we're referencing our sources. And because it's a special book that you're going to be speaking on soon and one to highlight for anyone who's finds that combination of 
architecture and landscape architecture particularly interesting mm-hmm. because the relationship between the owners, as you said, the landscape architect and then the homes architect was so special. Right. And there was so. like lots of collaboration back and forth that still goes on. Wonderful. I, I mean, with myself and you read about it, that it's when the outcome is the most successful, it's lots of back and forth between the home, the exterior and the interior and the client. Beautiful. So we hope you've enjoyed this little exploration of architecture and the landscape and that there's something useful you can use in your own garden and your own thinking about designing and planting. And we look forward to having another episode out for you in the coming week. Mm -hmm. And thank you once again for listening. Anything else to add before we wrap? I'll see. I'm going to be in Maryland. And so I'll be I'm going to be back in in, the, in New York, which I'm familiar with in Connecticut, but I'm excited to, to be in Maryland. Some of it's going to a Boxwood Symposium, and then I expect going to a Boxwood Nursery. Great. So I'll bring back that information. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'll be preparing your talk for the American Boxwood Symposium. In March. They are both Boxwood events, but this symposium is a weekend-long event, but you'll be the keynote speaker, one of, one of the keynote mm-hmm. speakers at the banquet dinners. Right. So that'll be fun. So bear with us listeners. You'll probably get another Boxwood episode. (laughs) (laughs) uh, A box of uh, Boxwood. (laughs) Yeah. We'll try to make it interesting. So anyway, we hope you get out in the landscape sometime soon. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Bye. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you, so drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details. And also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.